Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay, ta-da! The voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. Over the next hour, we'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be chatting with author Jonathan Crane about books that inspire him. And it's Jolly Hockey Sticks with our favourite boarding schools in books. Good morning. It's uh, you're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Thank you for joining us today. We've got a lovely show coming up. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers, and recommendations of some great books to read. We've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news, and I've been chatting with author Jonathan Crane, whose new book, We Need to Talk, offers a jigsaw puzzle of unwitting connections of Middle England for the reader to assemble. Today, Jonathan will be talking about those books which inspire him. And earlier this summer, I spent some time on the Isle of Wight, and I stayed a couple of nights in Cowes near the home of headmaster Thomas Arnold. Now, Arnold was, of course, the real-life headmaster of rugby school in the 1820s and 30s, and was made immortal by being a key character in the book Tom Brown's School Days. So the blue plaque on his house proved to be the inspiration for Julian and I to reminisce about our favourite boarding school stories this week. And I can promise you, you're in for a treat. Indeed, uh, our listeners are. But just to remind you, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, as usual, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any fantastic book you can recommend, if you run a local book club or you are indeed an author yourself, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on julian at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. Yes, indeed, Heather. Now, I found this uh, interesting little snippet. There was a book collector in Devon um, who has left more than 2,000 titles, some worth up to £1,000 each. I know, to his favourite charity shop. I mean, he was a regular visitor to his local Oxfam bookshop and he used to scour the shelves for hidden gems and he's a master collection of about 2,300 books, uh, which include um, a Mrs Beaton book of household management from 1866. Sadly, um, this gentleman was diagnosed with cancer last year, um, but he let the manager of the Oxfam bookshop know that he wanted to ensure that they were left to someone um, who would value them and he's going to leave them to the shop and the manager. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Isn't I've got it? to say, the 2,300 books, it's very easy for books to sort of rise to that level, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, really, I mean, you sometimes look at your shelf and you think, oh, well, I've got some books here. But if you actually start totting and 
encountering it, you'd be, you, you'd be shocked at how many you you possess. I know. Right? We have to keep doing culls. We call them culls. We would go through our bookshelves and then there's huge argument about which ones were allowed to right. get away. And then there's about three. And then we take them to the Oxfam bookshop and come back with more than we left. <laughs> anyway. I know, it's always a problem. Yeah, it defeats the object. But it, anyway, it's fun. It is, indeed. So Rumpole of the Bailey was a much-loved ah, creation. That was of uh, St John Mortimer's. I met St John Mortimer once, actually. Uh, Did you? Hen- at Henley Cinema. Yeah, ah. we were going into the cinema together and we opened the door for him. Ah. Um, so if you haven't read the Rumpole of the Bailey books, then do as you'll be in for a treat. You might remember, you might have seen the TV programmes of Leo McKern as the defence uh, brilliant defence lawyer. And he would basically wrestle innocent verdicts out of the most unlikely of circumstances. I understand that uh, they are much admired by real-life barristers today. Mm. No, right, great. So uh, St John's daughter, the actress Emily Mortimer, get that one right, Emily Mortimer, is rumoured to be rewriting the books, which sounds brilliant. There's Mm. certainly going to be new scripts for TV anyway, and possibly starring Keely Hawes in an updated version of The Barrister. So I really hope that rumour is true and that they will be turned into books, because I certainly can't wait. No, that would be fantastic. Uh, well, the, um, uh, my snippet um, is Sunshine and Laughter, uh, the Morecambe and Wise story by um, Louis Barth. Um, and it's just been published by Apollo. Um, they are, of course, uh, what must be the 20th century's most successful British comedy partnership. Um, and they began working together in their early teens um, on juvenile uh, variety acts. Their Christmas specials on TV recorded some of the highest viewing figures. Over 28 million people watched and the stars of, uh, of of television who were keen to get on there. And it's a warm and sympathetic portrait of the two people who conquered the world um, simply by radiating hilarious friendship and a joy to remember them. Oh, um, and yeah. you do remember all those uh, Christmas specials, don't you? Exactly, you do. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. so, um, I mean, with Angela Rippon coming down with that wonderful long legs of hers down the staircase doing the dance. And, yeah. and Andre and then, Previn and... All the yes. right. Andrew Preview. <laughs> All the right notes we can't just in the, the wrong piano. order. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that when we're doing this programme, it's all the right words, just not necessarily in the right order. Exactly. (laughs) Arsenal. (laughs) So have you been to Morecambe to see the statue of Eric and Ernie on the promenade? No, I haven't. It is fabulous. It's such a lovely bronze. And when you see it, you just have to do that. You know the dance with standing on one leg with your hand behind your head? Behind your back and hop it, yeah. We went to Morecambe with my mother and father, my mum and dad, when it was mum's 80th birthday, and there's a beautiful hotel. Um, oh, yes. Which, Is it the Art Deco Yes, hotel? it's Art yes. Deco Hotel, which was actually... Um, designed and built in the year that my mum was born so we went to the Uh, hotel to stay and of course we took photographs of them (laughs) isn't isn't it it something isn't it the midland hotel or something it is yes and it is absolutely beautiful i can definitely recommend it but anyway talking about statues that takes me nicely to a new book that i've spotted called fallen idols 12 statues that made history by Mm -hmm. alex von tuzzleman and it's just been recently published by headline and it's a fascinating book at what statues actually are for and how we respond to them. Because obviously over the, the summer or 
this year, there's been a lot of toppling of statues. Mm, yes. And um, Tussle, Von Tusselman is a historian and a screenwriter. And she takes 12 statues from around the world, starting with George III, that got toppled in New York in 1776, oh. after George Washington read the Declaration of Independence in America. Oh. And it ends with Washington himself getting toppled in 2020. <laughs> so you can above. see history just repeats itself. And she reminds us that toppling of statues has always been around. And what that teaches us about history memory so it's a really interesting book yeah and uh, you know uh, nothing new under the sun eh absolutely <laughs> uh, well i've got this snippet do you remember the evergreen um or rather i beg your pardon um ever given but the the shipping company is, is evergreen company but that massive container ship that got stuck in the Suez oh, canal yes gosh oh. that was terrible wasn't it yeah and that and that tiny little tug trying to david with goliath trying to push it back out yes. into the center of the canal um, anyway, it eventually um, got itself or was 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 got free, and it's finally managed to dock at Southampton Port. Wow! Where yes, where two thousand containers have been unloaded. Amongst that, of course, is a vast number, vast amount of fruit and vegetables that are just rotting. Yes. However, a little gem in there is a one container can, um, held the children's book by the author Oliver Jeffers, yes. and he's the award-winning um, illustrator and writer and it's his new book that was coming from the printers in China probably and it's called There's a Ghost in This House. However, because of it being stuck in the Suez Canal, the publication date has been changed now and it's coming out in October. Ah, so right. Off to the shops and order it for October. Yes. So October is normally that busy month where you have that Super Thursday just before well, it's sort of 12 weeks out before Christmas where everybody exactly. rushes yes. to the shops to buy their Christmas yep. Books. And that's yeah. going to be quite light this year, I was reading. So, right. um, yes, I'm, possibly, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. So, obviously, publishers' schedules have all been a little bit amiss because of bookshops mm. not being open and things like that. Yeah. But I think that part of the problem as well last year was basically last year the spring the spring um, schedules were just cancelled and so spring was moved to October to the winter schedule which would have been October um, last year. So then the, so so it's all over the place. Yes. So publishers are probably are scrabbling yeah. to try and retrieve things and put them back into place yes. as best they can. It's you know? certainly going to take a time, isn't it? Yeah, I, I yeah. really it is. Yeah. For all those lovers um, of romance uh, Jojo Moy's best-selling book The Last Letter from Your Lover mm. is now out in film um, I'm about right. to go along and see it tomorrow actually so I'll tell you more right. about that next week so Jojo Jojo has won the Romantic Novelist Award twice and her book Me Before You was nominated for Book of the Year so she certainly knows how to write her romances so I'm looking forward to the film tomorrow Indeed, indeed. And uh, well, hot on the heels of the publication launch of Sarah Ferguson's first adult novel, there is confirmation from the Duchess of York that Mills and Boom will be publishing a second book from her. Talking well, about probably, romances. Ex well, exactly. But I think that probably is her... her uh, her joy at that is probably slightly overshadowed with her ex-husband's problems that have just popped up. Oh, the, uh, yes, yesterday. which we're not going to mention. <laughs> no, we won't. Um, her, her first novel, uh, Her Heart for a Compass, was written with co-author Marguerite Kay, and it's based loosely on the life of, of, of the Duchess's ancestor, Lady Margaret Montague Douglas Scott. Gosh, that's a mouthful. Uh, the new book will be another period drama, and it will build on the world created by the first book. Um, and we wait, well... 
some of us maybe will wait with excitement. It's not particularly my taste, but I'm sure there's a market out there. No, there definitely is. I've got to say, I knew a friend of mine um, was the wife of an owner of a bookshop. And Mm -hmm. every time the Mills and Boons catalogue came out, she bought every single one of them. It was Mm. amazing. She loved them. Oh, yes. I think along with my mother, they probably kept the company going. I mean, my mother devoured Mills and Boons books. And the the formula is great because it didn't really matter. All you had was a handsome man, a handsome girl. It was either a doctor and a nurse or it was a landowner and a slave or something. And that's all it is. You just change the wigs and the frocks and it was superb. (laughs) It might have changed from now. (laughs) Still one foot on the floor, though, I think. (laughs) (laughs) This is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Thank you for listening. Coming up later in the show, we'll be discussing how boarding schools have inspired our reading. And we'll be introducing an occasional series about unusual bookshops. And today we'll start with the Thames Tunnel Bookshop from the Victorian age, which is sadly no longer with us. But first, I've been chatting with Jonathan Crane, who was on the show recently talking to us about his latest book, We Need to Talk. So this book takes an unflinching, honest portrait of multi-jobbing gig economy Middle England on the eve of COVID. Uh, He's already spoken about his book previously, so this time I'm chatting to Jonathan about his favourite books and the books that inspire him. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. reading I was getting so I was reading voraciously from you know through my from about 11 12 and I was reading things like Barry Hines's Kez hmm. and Henry Cash 22 by Joseph Heller and then I was exploring like Thomas Hardy and Albert Camus and things like that you know La Peste and L'Etranger and then Steinbeck and things like that and it just kept on going really and then I pulled away from writing a little bit, uh, pulled away from reading rather, and I came back to it again. And the stuff that got me back into reading were things like Raymond, you know, which was just lovely. And it's been quite a big influence on me, I think. That's interesting that you pulled away from reading after being such a voracious reader, because it's a Absolutely. huge problem getting boys to read. <laughs> so what do you think is the the trick to getting young men to enjoy reading 
just to say that it's an escapism, maybe say that there's not anything wrong with it. It's it's not rubbish. It's brilliant that actually you can learn about life and the world and it's about people. And if you're interested in people, which I think most of us are, then read, you know, and you're going to see beyond your limits. You're going to learn. You're going to grow as a reader. So and also just maybe embedding people with reading at an early age so that it's just part of the life, I think. So it's normal. Absolutely. It it is normal. So what types of books do you enjoy reading now? Well, there's there's a huge sort of a huge range, really. I've I've been drawn over the past probably five years to short stories. Ah. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because life is busy and you can almost get uh, a bite-sized story and you can then put it down and you can carry on again and pick it up and then, you know, just come and go with them. So... Raymond Carver, what I really like about him is that stripped back honesty of his writing and how you've just got sort of the scene almost that just draws you into the story. Linked to that, I quite like a bit of Hemingway, especially some of his stories, how he uses dialogue. They're very short. Hemingway are very short. Absolutely. Very clipped. Absolutely. So that's one good thing for them. You know, check off just because he's touching on fundamental aspects of humanity. I think, which doesn't matter that they were written in 1890s Russia. They're common to us now. And I think I love that. I would go with things like some P.G. Woodhouse, just for comedy, just for silliness, you know, a bit of Evelyn War, just for the beauty of his prose, some dubious politics in there, but the, st- the stunningness of his prose and his storytelling. Alice Munro, people like that, just a fabulous writer. Well-known enough, I don't think, even though she won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, I think, 2013. But what she does with a story about women's lives and how she compresses a whole life effectively into a story, it's just there's something magical about that. Mm. Helen Simpson, Pat Barker. I was recently compared with Elizabeth Strout. Yeah, that's right. I can see that. I know. I'd never read them. Oh, so they it was, are marvellous. Exactly. So it was sort of a really, really happy coincidence. One of those things. And then just recently, the last three books I've read have been My Name is Lucy Barton, Olive Kitteridge and The Burgess Boys. And it was just suddenly go and devour that and say, all right, OK, maybe there's something interesting in there. And you go, yeah, this is an interesting world she's creating. And she's all about character, all about people again. So It's all about relationships, I, isn't it? But it's that sort of bittersweet stuff, isn't it? It's not all nice. No. It's not all ni- And it's about almost redemption coming through these and people finding a different way of being through the story. And I think that's really interesting. So, yes, and I think yeah. Olive is quite an interesting character because she's quite prickly, isn't she? Exactly. Quite ambiguous, ambivalent in a sense. In, but sort of there are possibly bits, if you met her, you might not take to her, but you build a sympathy with her. And I think that's really interesting writing, you know. Do you think there's such a thing as reader's block? You know, we talk about writer's blocks all the time, but do you think reader's block exists? I think there is. And what's I think the remedy? Is. I'm not sure. I think that at some point you've just got to open a book and you've got to let yourself go and just carve out a bit of time, I think, because I think so often it's about time, isn't it? And about letting yourself go and letting yourself be immersed in that world again. So I think that just sitting down sometimes for an hour 
I think it's a wonderful thing. It's good for your mental health as well, I think. So oh, that's a good a good place to finish, hey? Books, yeah. books there to support your mental health. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Why not? Why not, indeed? Well, if I can recommend people to spend an hour reading Jonathan Craig's latest book, We Need to Talk, and that will be lovely. So, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed that. Excellent. That whole idea of reading books for your mental health is one that's really important, isn't it? Mm, I think it really is, yes. Yeah, I think just carving 15 minutes or so to stop, pick up a book and do something that's enjoyable and just for ourselves and quiet mm. um, and immersion into a different world, I think uh, it's really, really important. Yes, it does, because it takes you to somewhere else where you can just, just be quiet and in a different world. Um, for a period yes. I think it's really good it's very important yeah so we're going to talk about boarding schools today and um, when I was little I was brought up on Mallory Towers and ah, St yes. Clair's <laughs> the Eni Blyton books on boarding schools I was desperate to go to boarding school I've got to say <laughs> I don't know what they're like in real life, but my impression of them based on those is really fantastic. So Enie Byton was a tour de force of publishing, of course. She published 700 books and 2,000 short stories. Gosh, that's that's phenomenal. And she sold 500 million copies, I think, um, and still going strong. But uh, we're really going to talk about boarding school books that are suitable for adults to read rather than children's books. And uh, I'm going to start with Tom Brown's School Days by Thomas Hughes, because it was mm-hmm. that book that really inspired that whole boarding school storyline, uh, right up to Harry Potter and Hogwarts and mm. no doubt others that have gone since then. Um, but going off on a tangent straight away, um, Harry Potter, who was famously was rejected by many publishers before Bloomsbury decided to publish. Indeed, um, yes. The reason why Penguin Books, or should I say Puffin Books, the children's arm of Penguin, the reason why um, Puffin decided against uh, publishing um, J.K. Rowling was that they were already published The Worst Witch by Jill Murphy. Oh, right. So that was a series about a witch's boarding school, and they felt it would be competitive. Oh, right. Well, there we are. But this is, but this just goes to show, isn't it? And this um, J.K. Rowling's um, rejection um, is was not the first. I mean, it's been going no. on in history. Watership Down. I mean, also, um, how many times has that turned down before Penguin bought it? Yes. Um, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And then I bet you there was editors like kicking themselves, you know. Just but then again, hindsight, wonderful, isn't it? Yes, it always is. Yeah, I always say absolutely. to uh, yeah. I always say to authors yeah. that if they get lots of rejections, then don't worry. First yeah. of all, everyone's been there, and also yes. it's not necessarily about the book. It's no. just about the publisher might have something that's competitive or just doesn't fit into their schedule or whatever. Yeah, it's not necessarily about the book. Anyway, and also it's down to personal taste, isn't it? it that is. editor just may not like that type yeah, of thing but absolutely. it doesn't mean that that editor is perfect in 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 in, in their assessment and you're right so no. you carry on yeah yep. absolutely yeah. it's got nothing to do necessarily with might with sometimes the yeah, but not exactly. necessarily anyway yeah. back to tom brown's school days so i'm not sure how popular the book is to be read nowadays i know it's still available in paperback and actually hugh bonneville reads the audio audio book so Superb. i think that would be 
uh, mm. I mean, he's obviously got a gorgeous voice, so that would, yes. that would be great. So the book tells the tale of Tom Brown, who's moved to board at rugby mid-term, which obviously we know spells disaster. It must be so mm-hmm. difficult for children to bed in when everyone's already made friends first. And the book follows his adventures, often at the hands of his nemesis, the bully Flashman. And needless to say, Flashman gets his comeuppance and Tom and his friends grow up to be lovely young gentlemen. Mm-hmm. So as mentioned in the, uh, the beginning of the show this morning, Thomas Arnold, uh, the real life headmaster of rugby school, gets a major role in the book as the kind but firm teacher that befriends Tom and makes sure he's looked after. But the great thing I think about Tom Brown's school days is that the book, or should I say the bully, inspired a whole different series of books written by George MacDonald Fraser. Yes, indeed. Yes, this is anti-hero, so it becomes hero. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's, that is the Flashman series of books. And these are really brilliant, historic, comic adventures. And MacDonald Fraser not only managed to appropriate a character from someone else's book, but turn him into one of the most enduring characters in British mm, fiction. Yep. I've got to say, they are marvellous. And as I was preparing for the programme today, I was rereading the books and it was a real joy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, and also the history, the jump. George MacDonald Fraser is a good historian. So Flashman just sort of slips into historical actions and the sort of like fact and fiction are blended together. Mm-hmm. And the premise of the series is that these papers or diaries have been found in an old tea chest at a Leicestershire sale. And they recount the life of Harry Flashman, who always seems to land on his feet despite the tremendous cock-ups he happens to be involved with. And it's all told with tremendous tongue-in-cheek. And the joke the reader's invited to share is that far from the decorated hero he's publicly perceived to be, Flashman cheerfully revels himself to be a coward, a scoundrel, a lover and a cheat whose reputation for bravery is thoroughly undeserved. So let's just have a listen about one of those books. Let's get that sorted. I think we'll all enjoy it. Royal Flash by George MacDonald Fraser If I had been the hero everyone thought I was, or even a half-decent soldier, Lee would have won the Battle of Gettysburg and probably captured Washington. That is another story which I shall set down in its proper place if brandy and old age don't carry me off first. But I mention the fact here because it shows how great events are decided by trifles. Scholars, of course, won't have it so. Policies, they say, and the subtly laid schemes of statesmen are what influence the destinies of nations, the opinions of intellectuals, the writing of philosophers, settle the fate of mankind. Well, they may have their share, but in my experience, the course of history is often settled by someone's having a bellyache, or not sleeping well, or a sailor getting drunk, or some aristocratic harlot waggling her backside. So when I say that my being rude to a certain foreigner altered the course of European history, it is a considered judgment. If I had dreamt for a moment how important that man was going to be, I'd have been as civil as the devil to him, yes, milording and stroking his back. But in my youth and ignorance, I imagined that he was one of those to whom I could be rude with impunity, 
servants, tarts, bagmen, shopkeepers, and foreigners. And so I gave my unpleasant tongue free rein. In the long run, it nearly cost me my neck, quite apart from changing the map of the world. It was in 42, when I was barely out of my teens, but already famous. I had taken a distinguished part in the fiasco known as the First Afghan War, emerged with the hero's laurels, been decorated by the Queen, and lionised all over London. The fact that I had gone through the campaign in a state of abject terror, lying, deceiving, bluffing, and running for dear life whenever possible, was known to no one but myself. If one or two suspected, they kept quiet. It wouldn't have been fashionable to throw dirt at the valiant Harry Flashman just then. If you have read the first packet of my memoirs, you will know all this. I mention them here in case the packet should get separated so that you will know at once that this is the true story of a dishonest poltroon who takes perverse pride in having attained an honoured and admired old age, in spite of his many vices and entire lack of virtue, or possibly because of them. Brilliant. Uh, I've got to say that he is... He survives whatever life is thrown at him. And I just love the way he knows. He's writing his diary as an old man and he knows how awful he's been. And it's just exactly, brilliant. Yeah. And, 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 and he's just, in a way, astonished that he not exactly got away with it, but that he ended up where he was and because he knows he's a scoundrel. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> See, what was really interesting, uh, yesterday, in fact, I was reading Arthur Conan Doyle, who obviously famous for the Sherlock books. Yes. Have you ever read any of his Brigadier Gerard books? No, I haven't. So they're very similar. So they're not as as funny or as outrageous mm-hmm. but uh, Brigadier Gerard is knows that he's a bit of a scoundrel and right. he sort of goes mm-hmm. rises up um the hierarchy of the army in the Napoleonic Wars um in a very similar way in a very sort of knowing way that he's a bit of a coward and he gets by by a bit of judicious luck I suppose um so really really interesting that mm. we've got um George Macdonald Fraser being inspired by um by Flashman and Thomas Hughes who wrote the Tom Brown School books but you've obviously got Conan Doyle uh who also actually might have been inspired by uh Thomas Hughes I'm gonna have to look at the dates of those I think um uh, Sherlock Holmes Conan Doyle was later than Thomas Hughes so he's also been right, inspired yes. by Flashman. Fantastic, anyway. And, and also, it, there's one of uh, an, a shocking character in the Sherlock Holmes novels, which is uh, Colonel Sebastian Moran, who was a thoroughly nasty um, uh, military officer that, in fact, actually um, was a gambler and caused his death. Who knows, even that could have been um, Conan Doyle's sort of other inspiration as well, yes. having created yes. Sebastian Moran and then blends him in to uh, to this brigadier. Yeah. Um, I've you got never to, know, do you? I've got to say, as an author, you're obviously going to be inspired by everything that you've read before. Mm. Uh, you can't help but have a little bit of that in your mind. So as you're writing your new characters, you're influenced by other exactly. things that you've yes. read. Exactly, yes, uh, exactly. 
Absolutely. Well, talking about inspiration yes. um, or being, well, certainly in, inspired, I would say, is um, the, the school, uh, one of the two schools I've chosen um, is St. Trinian's, uh, which is the creation of the cartoonist uh, Ronald Searle. And uh, interestingly enough, um, St. Trinian's came to life in uh, what's known as a gag cartoon uh, yeah. in a comic strip series, which um, started to appear uh, from 1946 to 1952 and depicting a boarding school girls where the teachers were all sadists and the girls were juvenile delinquents. Right. Uh, and St. Trinian's it's, it's fantastic. is the absolute antithesis of the type of posh boarding school that Enid Blyton was writing about, as you mentioned, in Mallory Towers, um, where the girls are all well-bred, by and large, and come from good homes, whereas in St. Trinian's, the mob are thoroughly rotten. They're disreputable and often violent, uh, particularly on the sports field, where the visiting school's teams were often carried off on stretchers, and sometimes with vultures featured circling over the prone figures of of the defeated school. Brilliant. Um, (laughs) And it should be mentioned, which I think is great, the school motto is Semper Debiatis Percutis Ictu Primo, which roughly translated is get your blow in first. (laughs) (laughs) Now, off the sports field, the girls drank, they smoked and they gambled and they fought with each other. Um, and the sixth form girls uh, were paying great attention to any male who had the great misfortune of crossing their paths. Uh, and the parents of the girls were not much better. Usually they comprised of gangsters, crooks of all sorts and extremely shady bookies. Now, St. Trinian's comes gloriously to life um, in the two films, particularly from the 1950s. Definitely, yes. Yeah, yeah. the first being uh, uh, The Bells of St. Trinian's and the the second being Blue Murder at St. Trinian's, where Alistair Sim plays um, uh, Miss Amelia Fritton, the headmistress. But also, interestingly, he plays uh, Miss Fritton's brother. um, uh, Are we going to say uh, Cedric? I I think it might be Cedric Fritton. no, Clarence Fritton, I beg your pardon. Uh, but Miss Fritton's aided and abetted um, in the film by the actress. I mean, some really good actresses. Beryl Reed as the masked mistress. Yes. Uh, I think she goes around with a monocle in her eye. Rennie Houston, who's the arts and handicrafts mistress. Irene Handel as the English mistress. And Hermione Badley is the geography mistress who's constantly drunk. And her lessons comprise solely of slurringly talking about the wine regions of France. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, throw in Sidney James into the mix, along with George Cole, who plays Flash Harry, fantastic part. And then the hapless Ministry of Education uh, official played by Richard Wattis. And along with Joyce Grenfell as WPC Ruby Gates. I mean, you just have a, a, a memorable film, both of them, in fact. Now, interestingly, whilst it started life as a stripped cartoon, um, five books were, were published um, on St. Trinian's. Uh, the first in 1948 and, and up until 1953. So there's Hurrah for St. Trinian's, came out in 1948. Yeah. The Female Approach in 1950. Back to the Slaughterhouse, which is a very St. Trinian's type title. That was 1952. Then The Terror of St. Trinian's, or Angela's Prince Charming, was 1952. And then The Souls in Torment in 1953. But what I find interesting is that Ronald Searle, I mean, he's really very well, uh, very famous yes, cartoonist. Yes. 
Um, but it is St. Trinian's that it is his most famous creation. Brilliant. Um, and this is fantastic. Now, there's something I remember you mentioning um, yeah, I think, yeah. some time ago about um, the house. Um, there was a property nearby actually, um, that was is, used for the films. This is to do actually with the the recent. Uh, oh, it was the recent ones. Yeah. So, have you uh, seen the, the the revised Centrinian films? I which, have. Um, where you've got um, uh, Rupert, Rupert um, Everett, and Colin Everett Firth, playing this, yes. and yeah, Gemma Arterton is one of the yeah. one of the girls. Uh, who, who? Gemma Arterton. Oh right, yes. Uh, actually, I have to say, for for the modern version, they are actually they are they are quite good. I mean, I, I must admit, I enjoy them. Well, and but it's got that, a brilliant cast. But uh, yeah. that was done in um, Park Place near Remenham. That was the one. Yes, that's what you were. Uh, yes, that, yes. That, that's, so that's right. Yes. Near Henley, and um, the I think the Grade Two house used to be a boarding school. Um, ah, right. And uh, it was sold for forty-two million pounds. Good grief. Which, wow. uh, when it was sold, it was the record for a UK house outside London. Right. Um, Gosh. And I think, uh, just quickly, I mean, there, there, there was actually another St Trinian's film, um, and I think that was in the 19th... There, there was one... Uh, yes, 1970s. A couple of other, yes, that's right. Um, but, but fantastic films anyway. Absolutely superb. And great books. And great uh, cartoon script. Um, Super, yeah, yeah, really they are. I mean, you, you just look at them and you just giggle. I mean, they're just fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I think turning pages, I think it's anything that's written and I think cartoons can fit into yes, that, can't they? Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. Well, because it's printed material. So yes. what goes in print, that's we what can we talk cover. about. <laughs> that, in- and- that includes a telephone directory. Yeah. <laughs> and any film offshoot, of course. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's a given. Yeah. Now you're going to go straight on into your next one, which I've got to say, I can't wait. You've done the most brilliant reading for this. Well, thank you. Well, yes, we're going to start off with a, with an, an excerpt from um, Billy Bunter of Greyfriars School, and then I'll chat a bit about, about, about it afterwards. Okay, then here goes. Billy Bunter of Greyfriars School, Chapter 3, Jam for Bunter. Stand and deliver. Oh, really, Cherry? What have you got there? Nothing, old chap. Nothing at all. I say, you fellows, let a fellow pass. I'm in rather a hurry. But the famous five of the removed did not let Billy Bunter pass. They were coming upstairs as Billy Bunter came down. They met on the middle landing. Five fellows in a grinning row blocked Billy Bunter's way to the lower staircase. Bunter halted unwillingly but he had to halt. The Billy Bunter had something hidden under his jacket was a fact that leapt to the eye. Bunter's garments were tight. There was really hardly enough room in them for Bunter. His ample proportions filled them almost to bursting point. Any other fellow might have concealed something under his jacket without catching the casual eye. Not Bunter. On Bunter's fat person there was a bulge, A very distinct bulge, a bulge that few could have failed to notice. Harry Wharton and company had noticed it at once. That was why Bob Cherry playfully called on the fat junior to stand and deliver. Bunter was clearly in a hurry. Bunter's movements generally resembled those of a snail, a tired snail. But he'd come pattering rapidly down the upper stairs and he came across the middle landing at a run. Only for very urgent reasons could the fat owl of the remove have put on such speed. But hurried as he was, Bunter had to stop. 
I say, you fellows, no larks, gasped Bunter. I, I, I've got to see Quelch. He's waiting for me. Uh, let, let a chap pass. You've got to see Quelch, repeated Harry Wharton. Yes, old chap, he's waiting. How odd. We've just seen Quelch go out. You've missed him, said the captain in the remove, shaking his head. Oh, has Quelch gone out? Uh, I don't mean Quelch. I mean Wingate, stammered Bunter. I've got to see Wingate. Let a chap pass. Can't keep a sixth-form prefect waiting. Captain of the school, too. I've got to get to Wingate's study. No good going to his study, chuckled Frank Nugent. Wingate's on big side playing cricket. Oh, is he? I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean the head. Uh, that's what I, I meant to say. I've been specially sent for to Dr. Locke's study. I say, you fellows, I shall get into a row if I keep the head waiting. Uh, you know old Locke doesn't like to be kept waiting. Let me pass, will you? And Billy Bunter made an effort to push through the row of juniors. Then he gave a startled yelp as the bulge under his jacket slipped. He clutched wildly at the hidden article to save it and crammed it back under his jacket, but not before the other fellows had seen that it was a jam jar. Ha, 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 roared Bob Cherry. Are you taking the head a pot of jam for his tea? Oh, yes, uh, no, no, I. Whose is it? asked Johnny Bull. Mine, roared Bunter indignantly. Think I've got somebody else's pot of jam? Not that this is a pot of jam I've got here, you know. It, it, it is a bottle of ink. Smithy had some jam in one of his gorgeous parcels today, remarked Bob Cherry. You fat brigand, that's Smithy's jam. Taint, roared Bunter. Brilliant. That's a lovely, a lovely uh, recording. Thank you. Oh, I can't hear you, Julian. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, Well, I was going to say thank you very much indeed. It was my pleasure to read that one. Uh, I think I was slightly off air for the moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, obviously, uh, it's Billy Bunter that I've chosen, but of course the school um, that that, uh, that tried to educate Billy Bunter is, of course, Greyfriars. Um, And I think Billy Bunter is probably um, their most famous... um, Resident. Old boy, yes. Yes, old boy, and and probably they're not too proud of it. But anyway, that's what they got lumped with. Um, But to give him his full name is William George Bunter. I mean, he's the creation of Charles Hamilton, who, in fact, wrote under the pen name of Frank Richards. And though Billy is... very much a larger-than-life character in several ways. Yes, not in, every, in every way that counts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he didn't start out as the principal character, interestingly, um, in, in, which was a series of stories about Greyflowers which appeared in uh, a boy's weekly story paper, The Magnet. And interestingly, yeah. um, they started to appear in first appeared in 1908 and ran through to 1940 in the magnet wow uh, gosh yeah i didn't exactly. realize it was that old i know and quite surprising and in fact which i'll mention later the books came much later than that so in fact so yes yeah, so from 1908 through to 1940 Greyfriars uh and and bunter were basically in in a in a, a cartoon series in 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 the in the boy's own paper so just like centrinians yeah, ex- exactly, exactly so. Um, and it was much, much later um, that uh, Billy was developed into the main character and uh, for the stories, and uh, and he was used by um, 
Hamilton as the device to for comic relief, if you like, yes. and also to drive the plots forward. Now, Billy is in the lower fourth, uh, former Greyfriars, uh, which is known as the Rue Move, and the, the members are between 14 and 15 years of age. And, and Billy Bunter's defining characters are, of course, his greed mm-hmm. and his extremely overweight appearance, plump face and his large round glasses, which get him the nickname of Fat Owl of the Remove. Uh, <clears throat> as well as his gluttony, um, <laughs> Bunter embodies most, if not all, the deadly sins. Um, he's obtuse, he's Lazy, he's racist, he's nosy, defeat, uh, sorry, deceitful, slothful, conceited, and self important. Though, though, interesting, these defects escape Bunter completely. Um, <laughs> and he considers himself to be quite handsome, very talented, uh, quite aristocratic, and he's very dismissive of most around him, referring to them as beasts. But that's usually because he's been given a good thumping by somebody um, for for having done something wrong. Deservedly Uh, so, no doubt. Pardon? Deservedly so. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. But that said, um, some of the negatives, some of the negatives, all of his negatives, can be balanced with some positives. um, And that he can, surprisingly, when required, display great courage in the aid of others. And on very, very rare occasions, extremely rare, be generous with cash and with food. Um, but from the very um, the, <clears throat> pardon me, first Magnus um, story, Bunter suffers from an extreme shortage of cash and he's forever attempting to borrow money from schoolfellows, explaining that he's expecting any day now a postal order from one of his <laughs> titled relations, <clears throat> pardon me, with which he's going to repay the loan, which inevitably, <clears throat> at best, gets unpaid um, in in months, uh, but at worst, in some cases, never never repaid at all. However, that notwithstanding, Bunter is a skillful and persistent borrower. I mean, he's tapping everybody for money. Um, and as we heard from the reading, <clears throat> Billy um, is obsessed with food yeah. and thinks nothing of pilfering um, uh, food from uh, from his schoolfellows, their sweets, their cakes and hampers, which, in, which, of course, does earn him countless kickings, which usually accompanied by Bunter's stock exclamation of, Yaroo, Lego, you beasts! Uh, <clears throat> and, of course, his other expressions include, I say, you fellows, and his rather approach of, oh, really, Wharton, or to whoever he's, he's actually addressing. And then, of course, he has his um, stock um, little snicker, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and uh, for uh, for each move that Bunter makes, he's generally checked and blocked by the famous five, um, comprising of Harry Wharton, Bob Cherry, Frank Nugent, Hurry Jamset Ramsing, great name, and Johnny Bull. And it, and if it wasn't the famous five on his case, then it would be Mister Quelch, yes. the formidable form master, who would be um, taking the cane to um, Billy's ample rump. Um, now, he started to appear in book form, interestingly, from 1947. So there was a, a period of seven years from when the cartoon stopped and the books came out. And the first was uh, Billy Bunch of Greyfriars, which is the extract I, I, yes. I read from. And then it ended, can you believe this, with Billy Bunter's last fling in 1965. And that was the 38th. Wow. Billy Bunter book. Obviously yeah. well loved. 
absolutely well loved. And I must admit, I remember enjoying um, reading the Billy Bunter books um, when I was a boy. Yeah. And um, uh, and that's a, a bit like you, I think that was what it was. Oh, I wish I could go to public school because I had, you know, from the description of Greyfriars, it was quintessentially, you know, the boarding school that you wanted to go, which was a Victorian pile, you know. Yes. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, just to make a point to to emphasise how. Um, how we set the trend, Heather, because when we was discussing our topic um, for this week, which yes. included boarding schools, yes. nicer than going to talk about Billy Bunter, yeah. that very same day, the Daily Telegraph published a cartoon, a political cartoon um, of the Prime Minister as, as, as Boris Bunter, <laughs> trying to entice a rather grumpy looking diminutive, um, uh, what's her name, um, that woman in Scotland, um, Sturgeon with a with a Nicholas. slice of union cake. Oh dear! <laughs> so there we are. You see, obviously the 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 cartoonist department. I can't remember. It, it wasn't Matt. Um, the other card, the political. They must have thought, gosh, they're onto something. I must do a Billy Bunter cartoon with the prime minister. You know, we, we well, just it, set the pace, and it just shows that Billy Bunter is part of our psyche. Yes, yeah. exactly. And that's and that's the whole point. Is he Boris Bunter? And immediately you, you just put Boris and Bunter together. He's there, respectable. The, the cartoonist had put you know the yeah. um, the. Prime Minister's hair and everything, but there he was in those um, yellow um, sort of tartan striped trousers that Billy would wear. Immediately, you know, you know yes, who he was. Yeah. yeah, I'm just thinking though that would we actually get a book like Billy Bunter published nowadays? Because it's a bit fattest, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, the, that there is that problem as well. Yes, and and I was just thinking when when I was referring to Hurry Jam Set Ram Singh, that was obviously uh, I, I'm not sure if he was a young princeling from India, but yeah. he obviously was a student from yeah. India. And I have to, I have to say, you know, whether that you know was it's sure appropriate no or not, why, but yeah. was it appropriate? Yeah. But I, I must admit, I must admit, I remember when I was a boy uh, reading the Billy Bundle books. I used to find it almost tiresome to have to keep reading um, Hurry Jam Set Ram Singh all the time. And I was trying to, in name. my mind, trying to, to to shorten it because you know it almost seemed to take a page just to say Hurry Jam Set Ram Singh. <laughs> <laughs> but marvellous, really, yeah. really great books and a nice, nice memory. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and because because they're light and frothy. But I actually have to say, when I was going through um, to to find the extract. I was really quite impressed with the writing in in so far that it, it, I think as an adult you could go and read the Billy Bunter books. Yes, in fact, I think probably they are books for adults now because yes. I don't think children would appreciate the mm. humour. Um, and the bullying and the beatings and all that sort of thing that's mm. so far removed, I think, from life nowadays. Yes, it just exactly. wouldn't strike a chord, yeah. would it? No, it wouldn't. I mean, it was a, I mean, I think the interesting thing when, um, when the Harry Potter series came up, there was a surge in interest of children uh, wanting to go to, to, to boarding schools. Um, and so it did engender a sort of a romantic idea. And, of course, J.K. Rowling was very clever, I think, in, in that respect, she managed to create... I know it's a magical school, but she managed to create a school that you and I would know in our minds that this, yes. this is a quintessentially what, what a boarding school would be like with towers and, 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 and uh, cloisters and things like that. Well, I've got to say, a uh, really good friend of ours, her grandchild um, goes to boarding school. Mm -hmm. And so there's a school in Hollyport that's affiliated with Eton. And oh, yes. you can go as a day, a day school or you can mm. go as a boarder. And uh, she loves it. So it was oh, right. quite, it's quite Good. a new school. I think she started 
Uh, she's now in the upper sixth, and she started when she was a, a first year. Yeah. And um, and so she's sort of like so the, the school was brand new when she when she joined, but she right. absolutely loves it. She, got, yeah, she goes great. home every weekend, and you know, Super. but really, yeah. And yeah. it's uh, seeing the photographs from them, and she's like, her education's yeah. been great. And uh, but it's it's not a private school; it's a it's a, a normal school, whatever. You oh right, okay. Uh-huh. So it's not a public yeah, yeah. school; it's a, oh, right. yes. a commercial. Oh right, yes. So you're talking about light and frivolous books. Now I've sort of gone down a slightly different route for my mm. final book. And yes, absolutely. And it's by Kazuo Ishiguro. Now, obviously, mm. we have seen him on the top ten bestseller list, practically since March. I think was the launch of uh, Clara and the Sun. Yes. And it's been up there in the bestsellers list since. And he is just the most beautiful writer. And um, I just think it's fitting to mention another of his brilliant books. We could actually have a whole programme on Kazuo Ishiguro, actually. But anyway, you could. Yes. not for now. So no. uh, the book has never let me go. Um, mm-hmm. And once again, it has a slight science fiction ed- edge, but it's really mm-hmm. sort of, it's scientific more than science fiction. And mm-hmm. it's about a dilemma of our age. And his great gift, I suppose, is being able to take a very specific context loaded with constraints and extract from it a voice and a story that's powerfully universal Mm. so um here we've got um, a boarding school in the english countryside and it's called hailsham and it emerges that the pupils are clones and they've been created for the purpose of having their organs harvested so it's very much an an adult uh Mm. adult book and um, as a novel progresses its surface calmness and simplicity are obviously at odds with the mounting and devastating sense of loss that the novel evolves into a sort of like a meditation on life's compromises mm-hmm. and squandered opportunities. Um, so it's published in 1995. It's available from Faber and Faber and obviously mm-hmm. still published. It's one of his most popular books. Um, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And it's often studied at school, actually. Um, so that's that's interesting, and there is a film. If you do want to watch the film, you can do so with rather young Carrie Mulligan and Kira Knightley. Oh gosh, um, yes, in it as the uh, the school children. Oh, um, excellent! I know. So that's uh, that's really good, and obviously he's just the most amazing writer. Yes, yes. So yes, I think do that. So we were talking before about uh, a new um, a new um, item that we'll be putting yes. on the um, on the show every now and again, and it's about unusual bookshops. Mm, yes. Um, and finally, a story from the bookshop book by Jen Campbell. When Brunel's Thames Tunnel opened in 1843, Vandenberg's grandson, John Vandenberg Quick, also a bookseller, took on Stall 47, a shop inside the tunnel itself. The first in the world to be constructed under a river, the Thames Tunnel was hailed as the eighth wonder of the world and people flocked to see it, 50,000 on the first day alone. Late in the century, it was bought by the East London Railway Company and became part of the underground network, but originally it was filled with stalls, along with performing horses and, strangely, 
a ballroom. A visitor coming out at the other end, having bought many things whilst down there, was considered a very brave person, as it meant they'd spent a lot of time down there in the tunnel. Naturally, the merchants who'd set up stores along the tunnel thrived on all this, calling those who refused to buy things cowards as a way to get them to spend more money. John Vandenbergwick set up a printing press as well as a bookstall inside the tunnel, bringing souvenir broadsheets to commemorate the opening and others to celebrate the Queen's visit. Printed by authority, 76 feet below high water mark, they proclaimed in big letters. The world's first underwater printing press. Vandenberg Quick is often credited with the invention of the pop-up book, making elaborate peep-show books offering 3D optical illusions of the Thames Tunnel. He's reported to have lost his fortune trying to make world literature available to the poor in one-penny instalments. But on a side note, when pickpocketing and debauchery meant trade in the Thames Tunnel became almost impossible, the tunnel was turned into the world's first underwater fairground instead. The Thames Tunnel Fancy Fair was opened in 1852 with fire swallowers, tightrope artists, performing horses, Indian dancers, Chinese singers, Ethiopian serenaders. There were even steam-powered organs that filled the underground space with music, and to the wonder of the visitor, there was also electricity. I think it's safe to say that the whole thing was slightly bizarre, but then the Victorians loved their circuses. Well, there's a strange bookshop in the Thames Tunnel, which <laughs> ran, ran behind, uh, between Rotherhithe and Wapping. And Victorians called it the eighth wonder of the world. Mm. So next time we're shopping at W.A. Smith's at Paddington Station, <laughs> we can remember that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you'd like to tell us about that we can mention, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or a local author, we'd love to hear from you. And you can contact me on Heather at River Radio, river.radio, sorry, with any of your book news. And we're delighted to include some of your thoughts. So most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. And thanks also to Jonathan Crane. And his book, We Need to Talk, is out now. Other books we've been recommending today are The Fallen Islands, Our Idols, 12 Statues That Made History by Alex von Tuzzleman. Uh, Sunshine and Laughter, The Morecambe and Wise Story by Louis Barth, just published by Apollo. Jojo Moyes, The Last Letter from Your Lover. A Billy Bunter series by Frank Richards. The Flashman series by George MacDonald Fraser. Spike Milligan, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall, published by Penguin Books. Alice Munro, Selected Stories, published by Vintage Publishing. Catch-22, Joseph Heller, published by Vintage Publishing. Elizabeth Strout, Olive Kittredge, published by Simon & Schuster. Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, Faber & Faber. So next week, we'll be uh, chatting to author pa- uh, Paul Olivson Staub about the books that inspire him. So we're back. Looking forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11am and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us then, you can listen again directly from our website, river.radio. And Turning Pages on River Radio is also available as a podcast. Looking forward to joining you again soon. Bye-bye.
Sunset.